That's really what these archetypes come down to. They're your relationship with your own power. Why do we play the victim? Because there's a part of us that feels powerful and more in control when we do so. Why do we prostitute ourselves? Well, there's a part of us that likes to negotiate our power for security purposes. We're in relationship with our own power and relationship dynamics with other people brings out all of that. You know, whether you're empowered or disempowered in yourself will show up in your relationships, right? So the real value of doing this work together is every relationship, you think you're in relationship with another person, which you are, but most of all, you're in relationship with your own power. Welcome back to the Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi and I have my love and life and podcasting partner here with me with his blue eyes and magic self. <laughs> what is going on, everybody? This is Chase. So good to be back podcasting with guests. Feels like it's been forever. We've, yeah. been, we've been away in Egypt and uh, couldn't kick off this, uh, you know, sort of reintroduction to podcasting yeah. <laughs> better than with our friend Greg Schmaus. Welcome back to the Medicine Podcast, my friend. Thank you guys for having me. This is going to be great. And uh, usually we have some questions to like break the ice with guests and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But you were on a few months ago and we will point people to that episode if they want to get really get to know you and your story and everything like that, um, because mm -hmm. we have a lot to talk about today. This topic of archetypes is a big one. It This could be like a two-day workshop, really. Mm -hmm. So obviously, we're just giving people a taste of this, but it is really um, transformative and insightful personal development spiritual evolution work, whatever you want to call it. And um, we, you were the perfect person to, to take us through this process of people becoming more familiar with their own individual archetypes for their own life. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're so happy to have you talking about this. Yeah, I appreciate it. And um, this is, you know, a topic I've been very passionate about recently Obviously, my work in mental health kind of like opened the door to archetypes because archetypes are really the language of our psyche. Mm -hmm. And to really understand the language of the mind, you have to understand archetypes. And, you know, one thing I have found that I was really drawn to archetypes, not just for myself, but in my work with my clients, is it's a very user-friendly approach. That is archetypes are not personal things. You know, archetypes are collective patterns. So for example, if you need to explore the victim inside of you, by knowing that everyone has a victim, it makes it easier to take a look at that part of you, mm -hmm. where a lot of times we shy away from the parts of ourselves that we might hold shame around because we think, oh, I must be the only one that does this. Yeah. Or I must be the only one that has this pattern. But when you understand that, hey, archetypes are collective patterns, they're not personally yours, then it just, it's an easier barrier of entry to do some of the deeper inner work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I totally. love the way you put that user friendly. Um, it's so true because you can, you can actually have really complex concepts and ideas land very hard it almost like it clicks it just fits in by understanding symbols and mm -hmm. archetypes and and for, for context everybody um 
Megan and I read uh, Caroline Miss, uh, her, her book, Sacred Contracts, and listened to, to a couple of her lives around archetypes. And then just so perfectly uh, connected with Greg, who who is a practitioner of this work, and took us through sessions of casting our wheel and, and using these uh, very personal archetypes of ours amongst a host of archetypes to choose from to then uh, find various patterns and nuances and insights into our own psyche. And so that's really what we're going to be getting into today. And, and you know, you mentioned it, uh, how powerful archetypes are, but, but maybe as a refresh for us. And even if you're new, like, I think, I don't think I knew what an archetype was five years ago. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. And, and, and so maybe if you could explain a little bit, a little bit, like what are sure. archetypes and where do we see them traditionally and why are they important? So archetypes are really, like I said earlier, they're the language of the psyche. But what that really means is archetypes are the vehicles that we use to express and to relate. So in all relationships, there's archetypes, which are the patterns that we act out, the roles that we play, almost like the masks that we wear. Mm. And, you know, if you look at it, you know, more from like a spiritual esoteric perspective let's say you know you guys talk about you know one of the first questions you ask your guests is like what's your meaning of god mm -hmm. you know so if we're all essentially one being and that one being let's say divides into individual form to create relationship archetypes are the vehicles that those individual forms use to relate right so they're essentially patterns and roles that we play out as a way of coming to know ourselves, right? So they also work in relationships. For example, the mother archetype is in relationship with the child archetype. Mm -hmm. The mother archetype is in partnership with the father archetype. The victim archetype is looking for the rescuer. The rescuer archetype is looking for the victim, <laughs> right? The, the knight is looking for the damsel. The damsel is looking for the knight. So you have all of these different relationship dynamics and the vehicles that each party uses to express is through the lens or the, the vehicle of archetypes. And they're really the, the roles and the patterns that we play out so we can come to know ourselves. Yeah, I love that. I love that <clears throat> you make it all about the relationships because that's essentially what everything in life comes down to is our relationships. Um, and I also, you know, I when just for someone who's completely new to archetypes, if you were describing someone to your friend and you said, "Oh, she's just an incredible mother," you're giving mm -hmm. an uh, an archetype, the mother archetype. Immediately, that person, without knowing mm -hmm. this person, they kind of get a sense of what she must be like if she's an incredible mother, because we mm -hmm. all have this understanding. We all have had a mother at one point in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. so we all have this understanding of what a mother is like and the attributes of a quote unquote good mother. So that's what Greg means, you know, when we're talking about the really the fabric of our psyche or the language of our psyche, it's, that's just one example, but um, it gives context to everything else in life because we're all moving through life, interacting with archetypes, even if we don't know what that definition of an archetype is. Yeah. And, and Greg, maybe you can go into our 
certain archetypes good? Are certain archetypes bad? Is there a good and a bad? Or how, how should we look at these things? So the beauty of exploring archetypes as a vehicle of inner exploration is you realize that there's a light and shadow side to all of them. So there's not one archetype that's only light, and there's not one archetype that's only shadow. There's two sides to every archetype. For example, the victim archetype is one that we all have. It's one of our four survival archetypes. A lot of people, when they think of the victim archetype, they think of it in a negative light of like, oh, like playing the victim, like we don't ever want to do that. It's like, well, there are situations in life where you are being victimized. You know, let's say you're in an abusive marriage and your husband is physically abusive to you or emotionally abusive to you or whatnot. You're the victim in that relationship. And the victim archetype, the light side, is it gives you the awareness of when you're being victimized and it then tells you, okay, you need to set a boundary, make a change or take action in some way. Mm -hmm. So the victim, for example, that's the light side. The shadow side is playing the victim, right? Playing that disempowered, defeated role where you're, you know, powerless, you're looking to be rescued, you're not taking ownership. So, you know, the, the child archetype, for example, the light side is being very childlike and playful. The shadow side is being childish and not taking responsibility for yourself, looking for authority figures to take care of you. You know, so there's light and shadow side to all of it. And the work that we really are called to do is to understand the shadow nature, understand how it actually served us well for a period of time, but really look at, okay, what is the highest expression of this archetype? And that's where it's really helpful to look at both sides is, okay, the shadow side served me well but it's really my job to really work on stepping into the light side or the highest expression of this, even the victim, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I love so much about what you do is you take a, a, a this topic and this concept of archetypes and distill it down into really practical application for one's own self-reflection. And I think mm -hmm. where I think many can get lost or, or seemingly um, stuck is, is I think Carl Jung would be maybe considered kind of the godfather of this concept of mm -hmm. archetypes. And it's like, he's so massive in, in pretty much every way that it's mm -hmm. easy to get quite lost in his articulation of this. And I think what, what, you know, through people like Caroline, and as well as yourself, you've been able to bring this and distill it into like the, the common person's um, understanding. And so maybe if you could explain the process of what it looks like to take someone through the archetype selection, uh, the casting, and then the interpretation in, in your practice, just like you, sure. you went with us. So the first thing that I always do, and this is usually before I even introduce the archetype wheel, is I explore the four survival archetypes with anyone that I'm working with. And the reason for that is those are the four archetypes that are universal that everyone has. And the reason for that is they're, as they're called survival archetypes, which means they're archetypes that are instilled in each one of us from a very young age to ensure our survival, right? The child archetype is the first one. The victim is the second. The saboteur is the third. 
and the prostitute is the fourth. And the reason I always start with these, aside from the fact that we all have them, is if you really want to understand the answer to the question of why people don't heal, mm. it's the four survival archetypes. Mm. So the most common blockages in people's healing process are those four archetypes. It's the child archetype that doesn't want to take ownership. It's the victim archetype that maybe is pointing fingers, outsourcing responsibility, or getting some sort of emotional need met by playing the victim. For example, a lot of people receive more empathy and compassion when they're sick than when they're well. So playing the victim is actually a way that they get certain emotional needs met. You know, my dad was a doctor. Anytime I was injured, my mom would take me to his office and I would get the best treatment from my dad, his partners, the nurses. So as a child, the victim inside of me was like, oh, when I'm in pain, I get more love from dad. Right. So we get certain needs met and a part of us will start to self-sabotage. So then the saboteur archetype is the next one. The saboteur archetype is the part of us that once again has what's called secondary gain in not healing, Mm. right? Secondary gain is the part of us that benefits from not healing. So if someone is comes to me with lower back pain or an addiction or some sort of illness or disease, and I ask them and they've maybe tried everything. One of the first questions I'll ask them is, well, what part of you is benefiting by having not healed yet? And all of a sudden, you might find out that because of their back pain, they're on medical leave, right? They're getting paid time off to go to therapy, to get massage. And you find out that they hate their job. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, getting out of pain means you have to go back to the job that you don't like. And you stop getting the treatment and the care from the people that are paying a lot of attention to you, right? So there's secondary gain in not healing. So we have the child, the victim, the saboteur. Now we have the prostitute. The prostitute is where we compromise and negotiate ourselves. The prostitute is where we um, allow ourselves to be taken advantage of, or we compromise our values for financial gain or financial security, right? But we're kind of selling ourselves, so to speak. So these are kind of like the four blind spots that most people have on the healing journey that you really have to take a look at before they can really move forward and actually heal. So Mm -hmm. even before I introduce the wheel, I start with those four archetypes. And once we've explored those four, then I bring in the deck and I introduce them to all of the other, it's not all of them, but because there's an infinite number of archetypes, but the ones that we kind of have a working system with. And it's about, I think like 60 to 70 archetypes that we explore. And the working system that I use based on Caroline Miss's teachings is we're all working with 12 archetypes at any given time, the four survival archetypes plus eight individual ones. So I take them through a process of determining which of the remaining archetypes most resonate with them. And we choose eight out of the deck. Eight plus four makes out the 12. And what we want to choose are the archetypes that they most resonate with over the course of their life journey, 
not the ones that they just connect with right now. Like for example, with the pandemic, a lot of people, especially in our circle or our tribe, you know, um, resonate with the rebel. Mm -hmm. You know, they're calling upon the rebel archetype to navigate these times. So a lot of people say, oh, I have the rebel, but I, I ask them like, is that only in the last two and a half years? Or if you go back to like, as far back as you can remember, have you always had that rebel energy inside of you? And most people say no. Most people would say no, it's just something that I've called in recently, which also shows you that we work with given archetypes in response to whatever our environmental or situation demands are. But there are the core archetypes that we've had from the very beginning, which is why Caroline and many other teachers, Paul even says, you don't choose your archetypes, they choose you. Yeah. 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 And these are really the deep contracts that you've had from the very beginning, yeah. whether it's the athlete or the healer or the mystic, or the rescuer, or the student, or the teacher. These are the archetypes that from the very beginning, we most resonated with. And we have deep soul contracts with for us to use as vehicles to express and to relate in this lifetime. So we really need to determine what your eight individuals are, add the four survivals. Now we have the 12. And then I take you through a process of casting those 12 archetypes into what's called the archetype wheel. And the archetype wheel is based on the 12 houses of astrology. And each house represents a different area of your life. I'm not an expert in astrology. I'm just, I would say, an expert in archetypes. But the the wheel itself is, um, is something that comes from astrology, the 12 houses. So if you'd like, we can go through the 12 houses, just kind of summarize what each one represents. And then we can give some examples if that's kind yeah. of what you guys yeah. are yeah. um, thinking going great. forward. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, I, I definitely want to emphasize uh, the importance of that reflection on on what you're born into as it pertains to these mm-hmm. archetypes. Um, even using myself, and it was a just a really insightful exercise to go through this because I realized how many tools I've added to my life and you know a couple areas that i've shined up a bit i'm very introverted i was brutally shy as a kid but at a third as a 32 year old with a professional career and a host of life experiences i'm quite social i enjoy and a podcast (laughs) i enjoy being social i love speaking i love being on the stage i love storytelling which definitely came up as i cast my wheel um but really at the at the core of who i am from birth was the quite quite shy, introverted uh, hermit, if you will. And and um, so a lot of that was was having to put myself back into kind of the depth of who I am at, at my core and <clears throat> removing myself a little bit from the identity that I'm somewhat attached to in the modern world mm-hmm. of 2022, because it is ego. There's a, there's part of these things that have become quite valuable for me, but they are a part of my my mask, my ego personality that I use in life for sometimes my passion, sometimes my shield or my deflection. Um, but but it's not as innate as some of these other core archetypes really are. So that was one big takeaway for me. It was like, oh wow, this kind of is going back to like chase at yeah 
little kid stage. Yeah. Uh, during our session with you, we had to remind ourselves and keep asking the question. I feel like we asked the question like 10 times. Okay. Was this something that I was born with that was, you know, thinking back to my five-year-old self, was this innate in me back then? And it really causes you to pause and really get honest with yourself because especially as involved in the spiritual and self-development space that we are, there's a lot of things that we've been working on for a long time and you can take pride in that development. But if you want to get the most out of this, you have to set your ego aside of what you have wanted to become in your life and really get honest with yourself. Otherwise, you're just going to be, this is just going to be an airy fairy practice that you might not even get much out of if you along the way are kidding yourself that, you know, you weren't born a certain way um, and are just now adopting um, like you say, like kind of circumstantial archetypes. Um, but I, I love that you make that point. Like when we do this, we're thinking about what was innate in you at seven years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the ways you can do that is just look back and say like, what were my interests and passions as a child? Mm -hmm. What, how did I spend my time and energy? What was I really interested in? What were the movies that I loved to watch? What were the things that I loved to do? The sports I loved to play? Was I a performer? Was I an actress? Was I a basketball player? Or did I love to like sit in my room and daydream and go into other worlds? You know, another aspect of this process is there's many different variations of the child archetype. You know, so we have the eternal child. We have the orphan child, we have the invisible child, we have the adult child, we have the nature child. So one thing that I invite the clients that I work with to get clear on is what expression of the child archetype do you most resonate with? And that's really important too, because there's a light and shadow side of the child archetype. And our inner child is very often where we hold our deepest wounds, but mm -hmm. it's also where we contain our greatest gifts. You know, like, for example, I have the invisible child, you know, the invisible child, the wound is never feeling seen, never feeling heard, um, not really feeling acknowledged or validated, um, or like you matter. But the light side of the invisible child, the, the invisible child doesn't have to be the center of attention. The invisible child can kind of lead from behind, can be the silent teacher. And the invisible child can also be a channel, right? Can actually work with the invisible realms, mm. right? The, the orphan child, for example, might feel abandoned and not taken care of, but it's also very independent. Yeah, this was, this was and, my child archetype, yeah. And knows how to take care of itself, right? The, the eternal child you know, might have the Peter Pan syndrome, but is also very childlike, you know, very, um, very playful, has beginner's minds. The magical child might have delusional ideas, but it still is connected to the magic and mystery, right? Sometimes it gets caught in fantasy and might be disconnected from reality, but it's always connected to the magic and the mystery and curiosity and the potential of everything. So you see that there's nothing inherently good or bad when it comes to any of these archetypes. 
which like I said earlier, makes it a lot easier to explore. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's something that always needs to be kind of like driven home with people is there's no right or wrong here. Every aspect of it served a purpose in some shape or fashion. Definitely. And, and I couldn't emphasize more the importance of having somebody like you, Greg, to go through this process with, because as you go through these 60 or 70 archetypes, you find your ego wanting to pull, uh, you know, yeah. the king archetype for, for men out there who want to associate with, with king, uh, type attributes. Um, but, but having you kind of walk through the critical pieces of the king or some of these other archetypes that might, you know, at, at, at our surface seem applicable, but, but on a deeper level may not fit is just wildly important. Um, it's also a really beautiful marriage of the logical and the intuitive. Um, we, we take a logical approach as we, we kind of evaluate practically these archetypes and how they might fit into our life. Um, and then the casting process, uh, is an intuitive process. It's mm -hmm. stillness. It's um, feminine, and and so this is a really incredible marriage of these two concepts. Which, if you see them, if you see archetypes, uh, I, I've seen it done in in a, in a very rational, logical way, or a very flowy, um, intuitive, feminine way. And, and I think this makes it quite unique to bring it into this encapsulated process of marrying both of those power centers of the logical and the intuitive into formulating this, this really beautiful um, profile or this, this mm -hmm. outcome. And even for me, going back to, to the child archetype of the abandoned child, what, it, how it's shown up for me subsequent to doing this with you, you know, six to eight weeks ago is I'll find my nudge to uh, detach from a group and just do things on my own. And I'll be like, oh, fuck, that's my orphan child speaking. Um, or that's my, those are my orphan child. Uh, or your hermit. Thoughts or my hermit. Um, but I'll be like, I'll just do this by myself. I don't, I don't, I don't need anything from anybody. I'll just take care of it myself. Um, and that's kind of the, the, maybe the shadow side of that, which would be, uh, you know, arms lengthening people that could be supportive in my life journey. But, but there's also times where it's giving me confidence. Like, well, I'm, this is my orphan child. I can do this on my own. Like I'm, I'm totally capable. I don't need to be codependent on anybody or anything to get through something. And this is something that's innate within me. I, I mm -hmm. have the capacity to take this on individually and, and be just fine. And mm -hmm. so even, even in the last you know couple of months um, after having worked with you through this, it's just quite fun and useful to be able to clearly see when mm -hmm. these archetypes are showing up and name them Yeah, without judgment for yourself. But, you know, saying like, Oh, that's my, freaking orphan child again like poking its head up and you know how can I look at it see it love it and you know decide where I want to go from here um and I, I I just I love that that you're able to like you said kind of be at arm's length where you don't it's not a judgment on yourself but by being able to name it we can then like identify how we want to work with that archetype because as you say there is both light and dark so it's not a matter of like getting rid of that archetype that exists in us it's like how can we step into the the light side uh more um speaking to did you have anything you wanted to add to that because i was gonna um kind of shift gears just a little bit um i'll just chime in for one sec the awareness of the archetype is 90 percent of it 
You know, when you notice a pattern showing up, just being able to acknowledge, oh, that's my hermit, or that's my prostitute, or that's my child archetype, or that's my seeker, or whatever, it's really helpful to just have that awareness of being able to identify the archetype. And by doing that, you create, like you said, a little bit of space between you and the archetype. Right, you create that subject object relationship of being able to witness that pattern without getting so consumed by it. And also, it's so amazing to have, which you guys have now, the awareness of the archetypes in relationship. Like, for example, like you, Chase, I have my hermit in my fourth house, which is home and family life, which we'll get into the houses. But a lot of times, you know. My girlfriend and I, we might have friends over and have a dinner party. And all of a sudden, like Greg disappeared (laughs) and like everyone like or she like might take things personally of like, why doesn't he want to hang out with us? And then but she knows like Greg's got his hermit at home, which means like he needs a lot of alone time and space. And sometimes like too much social engagement is just it gets a little bit too much, you know, so you stop taking things as personally in relationships when you can see the archetypes being played out between one another. Yeah. yeah such a great point. You <laughs> completely heard my thoughts because the direction that I was going to go is let's, before we get into the wheel and explaining each house, I, you know, having, doing this session with you and Chase, like us together with you, like similar to going to Adrian, our astrologer, and having looking at our natal charts and how you know where's the harmony and the potential disharmony mm-hmm. um it just it's it's invaluable i would just say to the listener like if you're interested in this at all and if your partner is open at all um maybe send them this episode and if you're looking for unique ways to not only connect, but also advance and grow and evolve your relationship. Like this isn't in any sort of premarital counseling (laughs) books that you're going to find out there, but it is foundational to building healthy soil is understanding your partner on a very, very fundamental level. It doesn't get more fundamental than looking at your 12 houses. Um, So I would just give that, um, that encouragement, that invitation to people who are listening, like do this with your partner. Um, And, and yeah, I would love to hear more from you of like what you've seen um, with partners or people in relationship. Like what are the, you, you shared one benefit, um, what are some of the other benefits of doing this work uh, and having this kind of session with you like partner wise? Did you know that Mushy Love Latte contains three to five times more organic mushrooms per serving than almost any other mushroom product out there? How did we do this? Well, we started with the question, how do we get the most mushrooms possible packed into each scoop and still make it delicious? It took us a while, but the result is a whopping one gram of chaga and tremella in a mixture that tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll. To support robust immunity, glowing skin and hair, and overall cellular hydration. 
all organic ingredients, no weird fake sweeteners, and our mushroom growers have over 40 years of experience. They are OGs in the mushroom industry. We weren't interested in creating anything but the best for you guys and ourselves. Grab a bag of Cinnamon Swirl Mushy Love Latte at GetMushyLove.com and you can use the discount code MEDICINE, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, just for being a valued listener of the podcast. Enjoy. Well, what's funny is my girlfriend cast my wheel about four, around four years ago. And it was the first night that she and I got together. And we, she, she joked, she said, I just wanted to know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> oh, um, so she casted your wheel for you? Yeah. Well, she got, she's the one that guided me through it. She introduced oh. me to the wheel. Okay. So, um, her, one of her cousins had been working with Caroline Miss for years and I had done a lot of archetypal work with Paul for, you know, almost going back 10 years ago, but I had never used the archetypes in the context of the wheel. So she actually introduced me to the wheel about four years ago. And ever since then, I've been studying, doing her professional training and getting certified as a consultant and then incorporating it into my work. But I have a lot of one of the most common things that I'll see in my coaching practice is I'll be working with a client and I'll cast their wheel and I'll do some work with them on their wheel and I'll get like a phone call or an email from their spouse saying, I want to cast my wheel because of like the, the transformation that they've seen mm. in their spouse really coming to a deeper understanding of themselves. So it's really powerful in terms of working with couples, because when one person casts the wheel, the, the spouse starts to see this like expanded awareness and self-responsibility and empowerment, because these archetypes are your relationship with your own power. Mm. That's really what these archetypes come down to. They're your relationship with your own power. Yeah. Why do we play the victim? Because there's a part of us that feels powerful and more in control when we do so. Why do we prostitute ourselves? Well, there's a part of us that likes to negotiate our power for security purposes. So we're in relationship with our own power and relationship dynamics with other people brings out all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, Whether you're empowered or disempowered in yourself will show up in your relationships. You yeah. know, if you're disempowered in yourself, you might be the people pleaser or, you know, the prostitute archetype might come out. If you're empowered in yourself and you do some of this work, then you can kind of stay in the light side of these archetypes and really kind of show up fully in relationship, but not compromise yourself. Right. So the real value of doing this work together is every relationship. You think you're in relationship with another person, which you are. But most of all, you're in relationship with your own power. Oh, and, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, Snaps for that. That's right. what they don't tell you when yeah. you're you know, about to get married. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a lot of people are playing these archetypes out and somewhat aware of it, but they don't know how to put the language to it. For example, yeah. you know, a lot of people joke around saying, I married my mother right? You hear that all the time, and oh, especially yeah. in therapy. 
What does that mean? It means the child archetype is in relationship with that person's mother archetype, mm. right? Mm. The child archetype projects the mother archetype onto your spouse, right? Mm. That's yep. archetypal language. That's yeah. really, you know, what people joke around about or talk about in therapy, they're talking about archetypes. So when you can kind of like lay it out like this with your 12 core archetypes and really see what areas of your life they show up, then it smooths things out a little bit because you know what to look out for. You know what you need to be consciously aware of and you know where you're negotiating your power. Totally. So that's really the, the number one value of archetypes in relationship is it's a mirror of how you're in relationship with your personal power. Yep. No, oh, it's, it's perfect. I love that so much. Let's jump into the houses. And um, we'll go through, you know, I'll allow you some space to explain the house at large. Megan and I will share what came up for us as we cast our wheel, what archetype came us came up for us as it pertains to that house. And then, you know, there's definitely a couple of these where we had some major, major yeah. breakthroughs. <laughs> so we'll share when, when that comes up. But um, yeah, let's get into it. So the first house is your ego and personality. So the first house really represents your sense of self. It's kind of like the, this is who I am. And the archetype that you have in the first house is the archetype that you most present to the world. It's kind of like the archetype that leads from the front that you really identify with. And it's the one that you have a deep connection to, but what you have to be careful with is to not get caught in the archetype, to not over identify with it. You know, Paul calls this an archetypal possession. Mm -hmm. Just like you can get possessed by an entity, you can get possessed by an archetype. Mm -hmm. And we see this like time and time again, for example, professional athletes, they so identify with the athlete archetype that what happens when they retire, they go into deep depression. They yeah. go into gambling and drug addiction. They go broke, maybe even suicide. Right. So that's an archetypal possession of once their life situation or life circumstance is calling them to shift out of that archetype. They don't know who they are without it. Yeah. Right. So the first house is the one that you really want to be aware of because that's where your ego is. Your ego is very attached to the archetype in the first house. I have the healer in the first house, which means a part of my sense of self is so tied into the role of the healer that I have to be careful that number one, I don't go around trying to fix everybody. Mm. You know, I have to be very careful of not playing that role within my family, right? Because no one wants to be healed by a family member, <laughs> right? Because your sense of sovereignty and freedom is threatened when someone else is telling you what to do all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, so I've learned that the hard way. So the first house is really the one that you present to the world, the one that leads from the front, the one you really identify with, but you have to be very mindful of not getting overly attached to it. Yeah. Definitely. It's almost like your, <clears throat> your wheel sun sign, you know, mm -hmm. if, we're, if we're talking about astrology and I know that the houses are different than the sun, moon rising, all of that, but you can think of it that way as like, if you know, you know, what your sun and your moon sign and your rising sign, like ego personality, what, what you're presenting to the world would be similar to what your sun sign is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah storyteller uh was the archetype that came up for me in this house and um definitely just landed perfectly um i am and you're a gemini i'm a gemini uh <laughs> I'm, like... I'm i'm articulate uh well spoken for the most part even though i am an introvert and and you know at birth quite antisocial i do enjoy uh speaking storytelling i do it often in my occupation and have throughout my career even in the dynamic of my family um and it has served me beautifully i know it trickles into that sort of possession when it begins uh to suggest or i suggest to myself that everything needs to be a story and that even if it means exaggeration or even if it means embellishing to captivate the audience or something along those lines that's where it can trickle into all right now i'm now i'm attached to this i think it can also apply um story what story are you telling yourself mm -hmm more so than you need to be like oh, what's yeah, the internal sure. story that you're telling yourself about a situation might be accurate or it might be embellished because of that storyteller nature yeah, no totally uh mine my first house is the alchemist uh which i thought was interesting um but as you talk about it as you share like uh, I think that it, it really does. I mean, of course, all of these archetypes fit because I chose them because they resonated with me. Um, but I thought this was an interesting uh, first house choice, the alchemist. Can you explain a little bit? Um, you know, I, I think some of our listeners are probably aware of like what alchemy is, but like mm -hmm. what would the alchemist uh, archetype suggest? So the alchemist is all about transformation. So what you very much identify with is the process of transformation. Yeah. Right. Also, you're an alchemist in your work. You guys have your mushy love product. You, you formulate supplements like that's all alchemy. Right. So your work is really, you know, a lot of your vehicle of self-expression. So alchemy really shows up in that process of formulating things, taking different ingredients, turning this into that. But on a larger scale, it's, you know, turning negatives into positives, turning a crisis into an opportunity. It's all about transformation. Now, obviously, there's a light and shadow side to all of it. So the shadow side of the alchemist is the alchemist might have a hard time just letting things take their course. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So we have to balance like getting our hands in things, getting dirty and really kind of like doing the work, transforming things, but also knowing when to back off and kind of let the flow of the Tao go where it's meant to go. Mm -hmm. And um, we can get a little bit too manipulative with things. You know, the, the concept that comes to mind is one of my teachers taught me, it's called the non-mutation of nature. Right. Mm -hmm. So the shadow side of the alchemist has a hard time with the non-mutation of nature, which means letting nature take its course. Mm -hmm. So part of your work in the first house is learning how to balance that, you know, when to step in and alchemize and when to step back and let things take their course. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a, a lot of the contract there. Yeah. yeah, great. It's a it's a great lesson for me um, that push and pull, you know, like having our dream, having our business, having goals and things like that, you know, that balance of like, okay, when to push and when to just let it be and enjoy. And I, I think that I'm definitely in a right now, a, a state of maybe it's even just becoming more aware of the, through this work of like, 
I think I'm just at a point right now in my personal development where I just want to be, I just want to enjoy. I just want to, we, you know, we've been talking about this, take note of the the simple and beautiful things that are around me that don't need manipulation. They don't need to be transformed. I personally don't need to be transformed in this moment. I can just be and enjoy. And it's that constant push pull that I, I definitely feel like I'm in that, that stage right now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Second house. So the second house is life values. And the second house, there's there's a lot to it. So the second house relates to your core values. It relates to your material values, as in like your material possessions, what you claim ownership of. The second house relates to finances, so money. And the second house, most of all, relates to self-esteem and self-worth. Because you go from the first house of this is who I am to the second house of this is what I have, Mm. right? So second house is really this is what I have. This is what I claim ownership of. And this is what I have to offer the world, which is why self-esteem and self-worth is also tied into the second house. Unfortunately, a lot of people's self-esteem and self-worth is tied into their bank accounts, right? That's all in the second house which is why money and self-esteem and self-worth are very connected for people because it's all in the second house. Mm. So whatever archetype you have in the second house is the vehicle that you're in relationship with all of that. For example, I have the liberator in my second house. So one of my big values is freedom. So anything that's a breach on my breach on my freedom, I have a very hard time with. Also, a lot of my work in this lifetime is freeing myself from the attachment to material possessions of like, have the things you enjoy, indulge, that's fine, but don't be overly attached to it. Mm. The shadow side is I might struggle with commitment. The liberator doesn't want to be tied down. So whether it's like contracts, leases, purchases, financial contracts, a part of me like doesn't want to be a part of that. (laughs) You know, so there's, there's a part of me that has a hard time really committing to those things, because I don't want to feel tied down or attached to anything. So that's also the shadow side in the second house. Really interesting. um, As Chase and I were choosing our archetypes or casting our wheel rather, which is a completely intuitive process. It's, Mm -hmm. it's done blind, essentially. Chase and I both chose uh, our child archetype um, for the the second house, which mine is the nature child and his is the orphan child. So um, Chase, did you want to go into the orphan child in the second house or? Yeah. And and would love a refresh from you on this, but uh, I chose the orphan child as we were selecting archetypes um, from, from the, the four, I think it's the four child archetypes. I think it's six, Mm -hmm. six, Six. maybe six. There's, Uh, there's a lot more than six, but there's six in the deck. Okay. Six six in the deck. Um, and, And for me, it's not that I was an orphan, but I am a middle child. Um, and have always had this mentality of I'm going to do things in life completely on my own. I'm not going to take handouts from anybody. I'm not going to get handouts from anybody. And it's it's the way I see myself and others in, in a lot of spaces is you are successful when you can do it on your own. Others are successful when they've done that done it on their own. Um, and that's everything from from money to um, material possessions to uh, you know life successes, quote unquote. 
Um, and so I think it, it landed for me to have it land in, in the second house. Um, but, but also curious to, to get a little bit more, um, now that we're revisiting this. Yeah. So this being your house of values, the first thing you can say is what I value with my orphan child there is independence, right? So I value independence. Also where I derive self-esteem and self-worth is through doing things myself, you know, proving to myself that I can get it done. When it comes to finances and the way that you support yourself, the orphan child has this belief system that other people won't be able to provide for me or offer me what I need. So I always have to be the one that can, you know, bring the money forth, pay the bills, all of that. So the light side is the independence aspect of it. The shadow side is maybe we have a hard time receiving help. Totally. And we always have the belief or asking for help. Yeah. But we always have the belief that whatever it is that I want or need, I always have to go about it alone. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that is a story that I have consistently told myself. I got to do this on my own. I got to do this by myself. Even if it's like, there are, are people willing to help you and they say that they're willing to help you. You're like, it's going to be more efficient if I just do this myself. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to get it done faster if I'm on my own. It trickles into so many lanes. The amount of times that I just said, fuck it, I'm just going to do this by myself is too many to count. Yeah. Like too many to count. Yeah. Yeah. And the nature child, which is in your second house, is very interesting. Yeah, I know. This is a, yeah, this is interesting. And, And the reason why I... When we were choosing our archetypes in the very beginning, you know, which one were, are we resonating with? Um, thinking back to myself, innate, these things that are innate in me, especially as a child, I have always had uh, an unexplainable, soft place in my heart, a connection to, an empathy for animals and creatures and so when we were looking at the cards I was like I I can't not because there is this like my heart burns <laughs> for little creatures even though we don't have any pets but maybe you can go into a little bit about the the specifics of the nature child and what it looks like from an archetypal perspective yeah so the second house being your values very simply kind of superficially you could say what I value is nature Mm-hmm. Right? So that's first and foremost. But if we take it a little deeper, kind of like past the idea of just like plants and animals, the nature child also refers to your natural state of being. Right. So nature being your natural state. So what this means in the second house is a lot of your self-esteem and self-worth is connected to you being your natural self, you Mm -hmm. being in your natural state of being. And you start to feel bad about yourself when you're trying to be other than that. Yes. You know, one of my mentors always said to me, Greg, where are you rebelling against your natural state of being? And self-esteem and self-worth goes down when we're not giving ourselves permission to be in that natural state of being. For example, my natural state of being like yours, Chase, is very quiet and introverted. I didn't speak much as a child, but everyone would always ask me, Greg, what's wrong? Greg, what's wrong? You know, why are you so quiet? Greg, what's wrong? So I associated my natural state of being as being wrong. 
Mm. So I spent my life trying to be other than that. And my self-esteem and self-worth was very low. But as I gave myself permission to return back to my natural state of being, which is just quiet, introverted presence, now my self-worth is back. Mm. Right? Because I'm giving myself permission to be that. Yeah. So mm. that's what I see like the real essence beyond just like valuing nature. Yeah. Valuing your natural state of being. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true that, yeah, that absolutely hits home for me 100%. Like, uh, and Chase can, can attest to this, like, um, and I think this goes into also, um, you know, authenticity, wanting to present yourself in a way that is honest and true and, you know, in that natural state, what am I currently experiencing naturally and uh, just just um, being honest with yourself and, and how you're presenting yourself in your work and in the world and everything. Um, but when I haven't been in touch with that natural self, that natural state is when I was the sickest and lowest and most depressed in my life. And that's when we you know, got divorced was I was so far detached from my natural state. And it led to a lot of really horrible things in life. But learning opportunities, of course. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. House number three. So the third house is all about communication, self-expression, all facets of interaction. The third house is how we perceive. So the lens that we view our reality from, and it also relates to our relationship with siblings because that's where we're introduced to communication. Right. So remember, house number one, this is who I am. House number two, this is what I have. House number three, this is how I express and relate. Mm. Right. So, for example, I have the addict in my third house. So the addict might be very passionate in what it expresses, what it wants to talk about. It likes to, you know, get into certain things. But if I ask myself, well, what are my biggest addictions? I might say, well, other people's approval, mm. other people's validation. So what happens is in my communication, I might start trying to get someone's approval. I might start over explaining things to make sure they understand what I'm saying. And all of a sudden I notice my addict energy coming out in my communication because mm. there's something in the other that I want that I'm addicted to approval being one of them. So that's an example of with the archetypes where I've done some of my own shadow work in my communication is seeing where the addict archetype has shown up for me. Yeah, that's great. Super insightful. Yeah, yeah, that's um, good. What came up for me was was the night. So the night in, in the third house for me, uh, when I chose the night initially, it was amongst, I think, some other masculine archetypes like the king for instance and what resonated about the night is that i i'm less of a kingdom uh manager who sits on the throne and maintains order and logic and peace I, i'm more interested in the um diversity of different battles or projects adventures. or adventures yeah. to ultimately come back home, restore and go back out on something new and call me a Gemini or uh, even this kind of is complementary to my independence from the orphan child. Um, and, and I think for me, it's uh, a lot of times I'm 
kind of finding myself in leadership positions. And so as I communicate or interact externally with others in relationships, um, I'm often found in a leadership position. And it, it was insightful to me to know that I gravitate towards a knight more so than a, a king. And so being able to communicate in these relationships that my style of leadership might be need to look a little bit different than like management and um, consistent, you know, ordering and, and rather I'm, I'm more interested in project-based uh, work, uh, an adventure with a clear start and end such that I can come back, restore, uh, and then change or diversify into another endeavor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely, definitely a night. Mine uh, for the third house was goddess. And um, this was, yeah, this was interesting looking at communication and siblings, you know, like the, the knee jerk reaction is to be like, uh, I definitely don't think I'm the, like the goddess of my siblings, but I know it goes so much deeper and like, there's so much more to the, the goddess archetype. I wrote down here on my notes from the first time that we met with you, remind of divinity. Mm-hmm. So what... Can you tell me what I might have meant? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in your communication with others, you're a walking reminder of people's divinity. Mm. Right? You remind people of their own divinity, of their potential, of their beauty. Also, the goddess is the carrier of life force energy. Mm. So remember, the third house is about interaction right? Communication and interaction is all about giving and receiving, right? So this is the house of giving and receiving. And life force is really what we're giving and receiving in all interactions. Mm -hmm. You know, sure, we're exchanging words, but we're delivering and receiving energy. So what your contract is in the third house is to really master the exchange of life force energy and make sure that you stay balanced, mm. you know, paying attention to when you're giving more than you're receiving. You know, maybe you're communicating with certain people and you feel depleted afterwards. And you check in with your goddess and you say, okay, where did I give away my energy? Rather than really appreciate the balance and reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you stay in your goddess archetype, you're not losing energy when you're communicating, interacting and exchanging. Yeah. Right. You're staying in that kind of like well of life force. Yeah. And this, the thing that's coming up for me right now is the overlap with being a a projector because being a projector is all about making an invitation and letting others Mm -hmm. come to that invitation so that you aren't overspilling your life force energy so that you're not uh, diluting and just sending your energy to places where it's maybe not needed or welcomed or whatever. So I, I see that overlap there. That's great. Yeah. One of the questions I receive most on social media is, what do you use for your teeth? How do you keep them so white? And my answer is always the same. I keep them insanely clean using high quality dental products. My personal favorites come from Living Libations. They are the most effective and cleanest that I've found. 
like their triple mint enamelizer toothpaste. This is formulated with a very special ingredient called nanohydroxyapatite. Hydroxyapatite is a mineral that occurs naturally in our teeth, saliva, and bones. It helps keep teeth looking white by sealing the pores of the surface of the enamel and encouraging the natural mineralization process of our teeth. So teeth are healthy, mineralized, and more resistant to staining and discoloration. Myself and many other dental experts agree that hydroxyapatite is superior and safer than fluoride. To try the Triple Mint Enamelizer Toothpaste or any of the Living Libations products, visit livinglibations.com and use the code MEDICINE for a discount. And to learn more of my holistic dental tips, listen to episodes 79 and 84 of the Medicine Podcast. When we know better, we can do better. Enjoy. Okay, next house, number four. So the fourth house, home and family life. So the fourth house is your current home and family life, but it's also your home and family life of origin. So the fourth house is this is where I'm from. So mm -hmm. we go, this is who I am. This is what I have. This is how I express. This is where I'm from, right? This is home. This is origin. This is family life. So... Myself, just like you, Chase, have the hermit, which means, you know, I know in my home and family life, this was going back as, you know, young child, I would spend so much time in my room by myself, like doing my own thing. And to this day, like I need a lot of alone time and alone space. And I have to set clear boundaries to make sure that I fill that up for myself and then engage the world from that place. The shadow side is where we could have a tendency to withdraw a little bit too much, you know, where I might become a homebody and not get out there enough, you know, not give myself permission to go out and have new experiences. I might be very happy just meditating in my living room for a week and never getting outside, you know the first half of the pandemic was very enjoyable for me, <laughs> you know, because my hermit was like, well, this is a nice vacation. This is yeah, a nice, yeah. everyone freaking out little, about re yeah. little retreat. Um, <laughs> so that's an example of very clearly the hermit in the fourth house. Yeah, no, super similar for me. And, and this one just landed beautifully. And I think something I was aware of, but I probably would have named it something else. And, and I think the shift here came with it just being permission for it to be okay. Um, yeah. It's okay to be a hermit. And I think for me, where it gets out of balance, because I'm the same way where it's like, I can't rest unless I'm by myself or with Megan. That's it. And and maybe one other friend in life. Otherwise, I need alone time. I get almost buzzed off of the idea of taking a walk by myself for an hour and just being in my own mind. Mm -hmm. um, and where this gets out of balance for me is I think I actually say yes to too many things and know that I need the time alone. Mm -hmm. So then I get, I become an asshole because I'm the, I'm the guy who's out in a social setting trying to Irish dip as soon as possible. <laughs> or, or I'll look at Megan like, get the fuck out of here. You know, like <laughs> it gives I'm, me the look, I'm about ready to die. And um, so it's, it's for me, it's, I say yes to too many things. Oh, okay. I need to do this. This is good for networking. This is good for a business opportunity. I got to nurture this relationship. And then I get out there and I'm, two hours goes by. I'm like, we got to get home. I'm, I'm ready to ready to rest. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, and again, it's just awareness. It's no one is going to make that decision for you. Like, Hey, are, Hey Chase, are you sure? Maybe yeah. me, I guess, but I don't even do that. It's like, you're a big boy. You're your own man. You have to decide how much you need. And when you are feeling out of balance, no one else can decide that for us uh, or check in with us the way that we can for ourselves. And so it's not anyone else's fault when we are feeling depleted because it's a lack of our own awareness and follow through in setting up those boundaries, yeah. uh, for our, for your hermit. Yeah, no, you're super supportive of it. And, and I, I would say that we're more alike than we are different as it yes. pertains to that. Yeah. Yeah. I could be a, maybe a titch more, I guess, extroverted in that yeah. way, but not much. So this is getting a little bit ahead, but I just kind of want to point out that on the archetype wheel oppositions, as in the yeah. archetypes across from each other, across from one another, are in relationship with one another, right? They kind of like feed off of each other. So for example, across from the fourth house is the 10th house where I have the victim, which for me says, when I don't set boundaries and have enough time and space for myself, I feel victimized by the outer world, mm. right? Or for you having the athlete across from the hermit, the athlete's very outward oriented. Mm -hmm. The hermit's very inward oriented. So if your athlete is too dominant, the hermit's going to try and pull you back in. Yeah. Saying like, you need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the hermit trying to keep the athlete in check. Of mm, like, stop trying to perform. You need to come back in. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's so wild how this orients itself. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't, like, we couldn't have consciously plugged these in in better places as we play them out and talk about them. It's just, it's just wild. It blows my mind. I fully am invested and believe everything, <laughs> but every time we go through it, I'm like, what? That's nuts. Mm -hmm. It's just really, really cool. Um, so for, for my fourth house is the prostitute. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this would be more along the lines of where am I diminishing or devaluing myself or, or, um, compromising myself to please someone else or for some secondary gain in the house or in the in the fourth house the home can you explain maybe a little bit um you know where i'm from my origin yes. how that could potentially be connected to the prostitute so the prostitute in the fourth house what i would invite you if you were a client and we were doing work together i would invite you to go back to your home of origin your family of origin and ask yourself, where did I have to compromise myself? Or where did I feel like I had to compromise myself mm -hmm. in order to feel safe? Right? Did I have to please everybody? Did I have to censor myself? Did I have to put everyone else before me? Did I have to compromise my passions because, you know, this is the way my family always did things? Mm hmm. You know, did I have parents that said, you know, you really, you need to get a job that makes good money and following your dreams or your passions, you know, there's not a steady paycheck there. You know, so was I taught that I had to play it safe? You know, there's a lot of aspects of the prostitute, but what I would invite you to look at is where you compromised yourself, your self-worth, what you valued and, um, where you negotiated as a as a form of adapting to your home and family environment mm -hmm. oh yeah i mean being part of a, a blended household 
divorced parents, step parents, people coming in and out of my life all the time. I felt like I had to be a sort of chameleon mm -hmm. to it, which now serves me well in my adulthood because I'm very adaptable and um, that's that's great. But as a child, it feels sort of chaotic. So in every new situation, in every new house, with every, you know, uh, potentially unhealthy relationship that I witnessed my parents engaging in, I had to I had to I felt like I, you know, needed to be this chameleon to receive love, attention or, you know, even coming from a house of uh, six kids. Um yeah, it was, I was constantly changing myself to fit whatever the situation needed. So that's why when I look back as a, on myself as a child, it's hard for me to sometimes remember who I was because I was constantly prostituting myself. I was constantly changing myself. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm realizing that we're getting into yeah. we'll, we'll we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Yeah, we'll um, try to pick up the pace. House five. I have I have written down creating joy of being children. Remind me what, what house five represents. This house is the house of fun and play. Mm. So it's a house of creativity, yes. sexuality, the things you love to do, the things you're passionate about, the gifts that you have to offer the world. Like this is really your house of love play, creativity, joy, fun, sex, like all of that good stuff, you know? So like I have the wounded child in there, you know? So the wounded child is afraid to let loose and play, to sing and to dance, to paint, you know? Maybe there's the fear of judgment or, you know, whatnot. So a lot of my childhood wounds might come out in the in the fifth house for me. Yeah. As an example. Yeah, that's that's really good. And, and I have the addict, um, which... Mm -hmm. Anybody who knows me knows I'm quite compulsive um, and have, uh, you know, a personality that can cling to things and systematize them and make them obligations. And I often do that with things that are fun and then and that things, uh, things that I enjoy. I'll go, oh, this is awesome. Let's do more of it. In fact, let's make it a system and let's make it a protocol. <laughs> let's put it in the spreadsheet. Let's put it in the spreadsheet. <laughs> and so I, I become obligated, almost addicted to those uh, in, a, in a compulsive manner. So definitely one that resonates um but but one that also is uh i think providing assistance in the way that i pursue things that are fun at this point uh in order to not too much not too little you know mm -hmm. uh moderate if you will yeah my my archetype for the fifth house is the companion um which i i it, yeah resonates deeply in that in that space i uh, so much of what I enjoy in this life as a human is as a companion to chase. And I know this can, you know, reach into other relationships as well, but, um, you know, he, he's home to me. So it makes sense that my companionship with him um, would kind of trickle into all the things that I love in this life and just our ability to be silly and goofy and you connect me back to my child self through our companionship and just um obviously creativity and what we do in the world and so um yeah it definitely makes sense for me there that's beautiful you know the just very quickly the the addict in the fifth house is kind of like this idea of like it's like uncontrolled passion Mm. like there's so much passion but it's like i have to create a container for it 
Yeah. You know, because I bounce around to extremes too much. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? And then the companion is, you know, chase and my partnership is my vehicle for experiencing love and connection and creativity yeah. and, um, and joy, but always reminding myself that those I can also access within. I, I create the illusion that I need this person for me to access those things. Yeah. yeah. You know, so or finding the balance it out of me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also wildly important for me to know that, that my participation in that for you yeah. is something to be uh, handled with care. Yeah. Um, because if it was, it could be hurtful or, or quite wounding to um, devalue that connection for yeah. you and yeah. so i think again just reiterating the point that this is just wildly powerful for relationships yeah absolutely um moving on to house six the sixth house six house is work and health so work relates to obviously like job and career but it also relates to inner work the sixth house relates to health which is physical mental emotional spiritual all aspects of your health so think of like house number five of like, this is what I love to do. House number six, this is what I have to do, mm. right? Work and health, you know, you have to keep your body healthy. You have to, you know, show up and get things done, pay the bills, keep the trains running on time. You know, this is obviously we don't have to do anything, but this is what we need to do to keep things going, to stay healthy, to keep the bills paid, to keep the lights on, you know, so um and like I said, it also relates to your inner work. So in the sixth house, I have the hero, mm. right? So the hero is, for example, in relationship to my health, my health journey has been my hero's journey. Mm. It's been my journey of personal empowerment. But where I have to be mindful is in my work, where I always try and be the hero, where I try and be the one that saves the day for my clients. And I need to be very consciously aware of where that gets out of hand and I need to draw myself back in, mm. right? So that's the light and shadow side for me in the sixth house. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I uh, have the victim in this house. Mm. And um, again, lands perfectly, I think, between my career uh, and, and not so much now as much as it was early on, but even going back to like when I played college athletics, which felt like a job, um, I found myself victimizing or storytelling the, the, the story of the victim as it pertained to my, uh, the obligations that I had as a college athlete, how brutal it was, how I wasn't having a college experience. And then similarly, when I went into public accounting and finance and was traveling all over the place, it was whenever I talked about my job, it was like, I got to get on a plane every Monday and Friday. These motherfuckers aren't paying me enough. You know, these clients that I have are so brutal, you know, they're terrible. And it was this story of like victim in order to receive some sympathy, I guess. Um, but, but definitely that that's found, um, with with occupation health maybe not as much but definitely as it as it falls under the umbrella of my my career at times well something i'll just just chime in there for a sec the sixth house is where we do our inner work mm. so what this can represent with the victim there is a lot of times we're constantly working on ourselves in the sense that we're constantly poking and 
prodding at ourselves mm. kind of like it's it's never enough like the self-help the personal development it's like it's a it's a we, we turn ourselves into like this project yeah mm-hmm. which is a form of victimizing yourself mm. yeah right? so the inner work can be a form of self-victimization if we're just poking and prodding at all these different parts of us rather than yeah. just giving ourselves permission to be yeah. yeah. And I think that's how it would play into health because you've always, you know, really like, okay, how can I improve? How can I get better? What do I need to, you know, fix or work on or improve in my health? Yeah. You're always thinking about that. Totally. Yeah. Spot on. Maybe sometimes more than is necessary. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I think so. Um, yes. In my sixth house, I have the advocate which yeah feels very very core i mean everything that i do in our business and work and you know even before podcasting as a dental hygienist i was an advocate for people taking ownership of their oral health and overall health um but i definitely feel that for myself as well well if you take a look at your work you know, work and health are kind of parallel for you because health is your work in many ways. So you're very much an advocate for holistic living, for certain products that you believe in, making sure that you're discerning what you advocate for. You know, a lot of podcasters might advocate for a certain product that they get paid a commission, but they don't actually feel aligned in terms of values. Yeah. You know, so that's something that you're very consciously aware of. And when I look at your wheel, I talked about oppositions earlier. Across from your advocate is the student. So the student's all about learning. The advocate's all about sharing. So you could say a lot of your work in terms of work and health is to learn and share, to learn and share, to learn and share. And the balance of that is kind of like the the turning over and the reciprocity of that energy. Oh my gosh, freaking Greg, you're such a wizard because (laughs) I literally tell myself that when I read something, when I'm learning something, I ask myself as I'm learning it, okay, I want to absorb this in a way such that I can teach it to someone else. Mm -hmm. That's so crazy. Like, I don't, I don't know if I've ever even said that out loud, but that's, you just stated it in in different words, but that's exactly how I approach Mm. being a student is so I can advocate for myself or for another, teach it, share, because it literally hurts me not to share something that has helped me. Yeah, that's the advocate that's hurting inside of you when the student learns something. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome. Wild. Moving on to the seventh house, and and I'll, uh, we mentioned it earlier, but I will bring it up again. Uh, 12 houses. And now that we're past the halfway mark of six to seven, there is a relationship between now one and seven. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Cool. So seven is the house of marriage and relationships. So one-on-one relationships, this is now where we start to orient ourselves towards the other, right? So the first six houses is really you coming to know yourself. And then once you turn the corner of the seventh house, now you're starting to learn about yourself in relationship to the other. So the seventh house now starts to hold up the mirror. So other people start to mirror back to you parts of yourself. Mm. So for example, I have the saboteur in my one-on-one relationships. 
So I have to be very aware of patterns of self-sabotage in relationships or sabotaging others in relationships. Remember, across from seven is one where I have the healer. So if I'm going around trying to fix everybody, I might sabotage myself, but I'm also sabotaging them because fixing people never serves anybody, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. I have to be very consciously aware of where the shadow side of my healer then projects into my relationships and now the saboteur shows up. So that's mm -hmm. an example of how, you know, an archetype would show up in the seventh house. Totally. Um, seeker came up for me in this house and I am trying to remember a little bit about some of the qualities of the, of the seeker. I think it's like seeker of, of truth and authenticity and, and wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, and I definitely feel at least in, in, you know, our relationship, um, just an absolute thirst for the pursuit of the most authentic expression of, of what our relationship potential could be. Yeah. Um, and think that when things went wrong, uh, to the, to the point that we actually divorced, um, it was both of us with an inability to, um, even pretend that this thing was working and thus couldn't stand the lack of authenticity yeah. and, and had to separate. And so I think that the element of this that is resonating is kind of that seeking of truth um, and, and kind of embodying it in the process. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. What am I looking for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Truth seeking and also seeking the potential is I want to highlight that because it's like you see the potential within our relationship and it's kind of like the horizon, right? You, right? you seek the horizon. You're never actually going to reach the horizon. And I think that that's, that's definitely um, applicable and true for our, our relationship as well. And I want to, I want to also make sure that we're providing value for the listener and not just making it all about us, but providing insight and examples, you know, mm -hmm. for people to be able to apply these concepts to their own life. Um, so in my seventh house, I have the victim, which we've already, you know, kind of gone over a little bit. But when I really sat and uh, sat with it, I absolutely think that this is <laughs> correct. Um, not only am I able now to see when I was victimizing myself in our marriage and creating stories around being a victim and what that meant and what he thought of me and what you know, where my value was and everything like that. Um, there was so much lost between us because I was stuck in that victim mindset. And now in part two, I would say I've definitely, not that I'm perfect at this, but definitely um, kind of traversed into the lighter side of the victim where now I can, because it was it was experienced at such a severe level in our marriage for myself, um, that I now can see, it's really easy to see, uh, the difference. And when I'm even just like, just tasting victimhood when I don't need to be mm -hmm. and like nabbing it, just being like, Nope, I see you. Thank you for your cooperation and your participation in my life. I don't need you anymore. Um, but yeah, definitely feel that really deeply. Yeah. It's all about boundaries you know we feel victimized when we feel boundaries being crossed so the big thing with the victim in one-on-one -on -one relationships is where we need strong boundaries and 
to always also remind ourselves whatever we're experiencing at any given moment that we chose that. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever we feel victimized in a relationship, a lot of people come to me and I work with them and they're like complaining about their marriage. And I'm like, well, you're choosing to participate in it. No one's forcing you to be in that marriage. So remember that you have the free will to be in it or not be in it. Mm-hmm. You know, so the victim, we're reclaiming boundaries and we're also reclaiming a hundred percent self-responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also being able, like it, it, I think about it in the relationship of like a, a parent because we can easily as children make ourselves the vic- as adult children, right? Mm-hmm. Make ourselves the victim in a parent relationship when probably most of the time with our parents, it's not even about us. It's mm-hmm. it's their own journey. It's their own unresolved unconscious behavior that then we apply to ourselves and make us the victim, which of course can happen in any relationship, but I feel like it happens a lot with parents. And it's like being able to step back from that victim and be like this isn't about yeah. me. I don't need to be the victim here. I'm yeah. really not. It's about them. Yeah. This is why Matt Kahn says, you never have to forgive another person. You only have to forgive the story you created about yourself. Yeah. As a result of whatever they did. And right. I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah that's so good. <laughs> um, all right. All next right. Eighth house. Eighth house. This is a, a big one, especially related to what we're talking about. Eighth house is other people's resources. So other people's resources, this relates to other people's money, other people's um, material possessions, other people's time and energy. The eighth house, remember, is across from the second house. So second house is this is what I have to offer. Eighth house, what other people have to offer me. Mm. Right? So the eighth house represents what you have that I want. Right. What other people have to offer me. Right. So I have the visionary in the eighth house, which is very interesting because when I work with people, I'm working with their stuff. Mm. Right. I'm working with how they're spending their time, how they're spending their energy, how they're utilizing their resources. And my job is to be able to see where the breakdown is in that. Mm. Right. So that's where even in my work in the eighth house, being able to see how other people are in relationship to their resources is kind of like where I kind of step mm-hmm. in. Like I'm I'm the visionary right now seeing your guys wheel, your guys wheels, your archetypes or your resources that you're using. Mm-hmm. My job is to be able to see the dynamics of all of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's how, for me, the, the archetype that I have shows up in the, in the eighth house. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. And in, in reminding me of, of when we went through this, um, I have the prostitute in my eighth house. And, um, I think what initially came up for me is, is, you know, being an employee of employers doing work in a lane that I don't particularly find fun, um, but doing it well and executing it. Uh, to completion in order to have pay in order to make money. Um, I think I've also been a prostitute, um, not just for money, but for, I think we talked about this in our session where 
I don't have a science background. I don't have a health background. Um, and so, but, but that's what interests me now in my adult life. And so I've told myself the story that I don't have the chops to be in the same seat as some of these others in the health and wellness space uh, loosely. So I will do things in order to prove my worth such that I can be invited at the table of the health and wellness professionals or the community that we're a part of because of what I've done for mm -hmm. it, for them. Um, and so I've, I've found myself uh, proving my worth in a prostitute-like way. Sure. Sure. Yeah, for me, I have the athlete, which is all about performance and outward showing and basically, you know, strength and things like that. But also like, hey, look at me, you know, I'm on the stage for you to please pay attention to, uh, especially coming from uh, a big family, uh, you know, six kids. I feel like I was constantly looking for opportunities to receive their love, receive the the energy that they had to give, the finite amount of attention that my parents had to give. Like I was the athlete saying like, hey, look at me, I'm performing. Or maybe it wasn't athletics, but it was uh, being funny or, you know, being silly or goofy, trying to get people to look at me and laugh at me to, you know, gain their resources, their attention. Yeah. Hey friends, by now you probably have picked up that Chase and I are committed to living optimally healthy lives. We are obsessed with small actions that have profound benefits for the entire body, which is why I'm super excited to share the benefits of ASEA with you. ASEA is classified as a cell signaling supplement, meaning that it supports cellular regeneration and communication. Our overall expression of health comes down to our individual cells and how they function. And with so many toxins, pesticides, and disruptors that unfortunately exist in our world, it's no wonder that the body starts to break down and express disease. We'd like to limit that disease expression if possible, and it is possible. ASEA is full of redox molecules. These redox molecules are the communication centers of your cells. We're born with redox molecules, but they steadily decrease over time. So ASEA redox comes in two different forms, used in different ways, but both have incredible capacity to help the body heal itself. There's a liquid and a gel. ASEA Redox Liquid is something we drink daily to increase our internal cellular communication and regeneration throughout the body. We've noticed that our digestion, sleep quality, and recovery after workouts has all improved. The gel is a topical product that can be used for pain or fast healing of injuries or skin issues. I personally use it on my face twice a day to promote smooth, nourished, clear skin and honestly, my skin has never been softer or smoother in my life. I'm amazed. The gel also increases blood flow significantly. So TMI, but we love to use it before sex to increase blood flow and sensation. I won't get into all the details here, but wow, it really works. To learn more about how ASEA supports your entire body and see a full breakdown of uses, you can go to themedicine.com forward slash ASEA. That's A-S-E-A. -E or you can just check the show notes, of course, for the direct link. 
we are committed to only sharing with you guys what has made a significant impact on our lives and overall well-being. Cheers to cellular health and cheers to ASEA. Okay, bye. So competing for resources. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Athlete in the eighth house. Um, also, you see across from the athlete is your nature child. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have this dynamic of natural state of being versus performing for others. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the work there is to give the child inside of us exactly what we need. So we don't have to perform for others to get that anymore. Yeah. You know, so which we all need to learn from that. And, you know, Chase having the the prostitute across from the orphan child. Anytime you have two survival archetypes across from each other, there's, you know, a lot of substance there. So remember the prostitute has a struggle with self-esteem. And self-esteem or self-worth relates also to our ability to receive, Mm. right? So the orphan child says, I need to do it all myself. So the prostitute with low self-esteem, we have a hard time receiving. Yeah. Yep. Right. Receiving people's help, which is one of their other people's resources, you know, help, time, support, you know, so the ability to receive. Definitely. Yeah. Nails it. Cool. (laughs) ninth house spirituality yes this is your relationship with god this is your spiritual life i have the spiritual prostitute Mm. which is fun (laughs) (laughs) the spiritual prostitute is something that a lot of people can relate to for example where your prayer is a form of negotiation Mm -hmm. right yeah. God, I want this. And I promise if you give me this, I'll do this or I won't do that anymore. Right? Yeah. How many people's prayer life is just negotiating with God? Yeah. It's like or, a letter to Santa. Yeah. Or how many people's idea of unconditional love is just pleasing everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So unconditional love with low self-worth is just people pleasing. Right. So that's an example, two examples of the prostitute in the ninth house. Yeah. That's really good. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, mm-hmm. Mine is the pioneer. And um, I think going to great lengths, um, potentially original lengths or novel uh, attempts at experiencing God. And I th- think this just lands for me. Everything from going to Egypt and studying um, ancient civilizations all the way to uh, a deep interest in in spirituality and altered states of consciousness um i'm i'm quite interested in novel original non-mainstream ways of experiencing god and and doing it from this uh adventure standpoint through the pioneer yeah pretty awesome he has a core value of not wanting to do what everyone else is doing like Mm -hmm. sometimes to a fault i think where it's like i ignore good advice (laughs) yeah because like well everyone's doing that i don't want to do that um, and in in no lane more so than your spirituality, when everyone else in your life was saying and doing one thing, you were the person that was like, "Nope, I don't, I don't yeah. think that's." Yeah, that's a good point. Evangelical Christian background, family, community, and I was always the one who was not buying it, not buying it, not buying it. So pine, yeah. pioneer in that sense, I guess. Yeah. What about you, babe? Awesome. I have the saboteur. Um, mm-hmm. And when I think about, okay, sabotage, where have I sabotaged my own 
spiritual growth or evolution in my life. It definitely happened um, all throughout my life, even just, you know, in growing up in the evangelical space. I had so many questions as a kid that I was just literally afraid to ask. I would just sabotage my own curiosity because I was afraid that if I asked this question that God or Jesus or my dad would be mad, be angry, or think that I didn't believe. And I, that's all I wanted was to, you know, uh, to be the good Christian girl. And I was sabotaging my own curiosity. So I believed for so long, even into adulthood, that I wasn't a curious person. But it was because there was a fear attached to that curiosity that like, if I'm curious about this, what does it say about me? And so now in my spiritual life, it's not being afraid to be completely curious and dig into things that might be weird, but um, are really resonating with me in some space. And so just really it's allowed me the opportunity in my spirituality now to completely follow my intuition, even if it's the weirdest book or it's the weirdest, whatever someone, some people might judge it. Don't care. I'm, I'm curious about it. And because I am a curious person, contrary to what I told myself for most of my life. I think the, the saboteur in the ninth house is an important lesson for everybody, which is, where do you sabotage spiritual guidance because it's inconvenient to your ego? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? The saboteur doesn't want to be inconvenienced. Yeah. Right. But a lot of spiritual guidance is inconvenient to what we thought we wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be you need to, you know, move to a different country. You need to find a new career. You need to leave this relationship. Like, you know, yeah, spirit's not afraid of turning shit upside down. <laughs> yeah, you know, for the, for the betterment the of your soul. But you know, the saboteur doesn't like inconvenience, so um, yeah. it's a big one. From so, our notes, oh, sorry, I was just gonna say from our notes uh, from the first time around in our session with you, I wrote mm-hmm. down. This is definitely your phrase. It's not mine. Eliminate psychic weight. Yes. So psychic weight are the the weight of the belief systems, limiting belief systems, and ideas that we carry that prevent us from following our intuition, Mm -hmm. or receiving, you know, divine intervention, or um, whatever it might be. So let's say we get an intuitive hit of we need to leave our career, and, you know, do something else. So the psychic weight are all the belief systems and reasons why we shouldn't do that. Mm hmm. You know, or maybe someone has cancer and they're told that, you know, you need to leave your marriage and go to the Himalayas and do whatever, um, meditate in a cave. And the psychic weight are all the reasons why we shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, so the psychic weight, like Caroline talks about, if you think about the cross in Christianity, vertical cross being um, vertical consciousness or vertical time horizontal axis being um, linear time, the vertical axis is where things happen instantaneously, Mm. right? Miracles, instantaneous healings, radical remissions. And what she teaches is the more psychic weight we carry, the weight of the belief systems tips the vertical axis into the horizontal, and now it takes longer for healing to happen. 
Mm. Right. So, you know, a lot of people say Jesus was an example of someone that incarnated with no psychic weight, which is why he was able to manifest or channel. Oh. Right. Cause he lived in the vertical axis. Damn, mm-hmm. damn, damn. That's so cool. That's so but cool. The more psychic weight, it tips you into the horizontal axis. Yeah. And then things take 10 years instead of 10 seconds. Mm. <sighs> so good. Wow. I'm going to ask yeah. myself every morning, how can I eliminate more psychic yeah. weight? <laughs> yeah. How can I lose this weight for good? <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Ramdas talks about like dropping models, the models that we carry, mm. the models of who we thought we were, the models of how something was supposed to be. And so much of our spiritual growth is the releasing of one model at a time. Mm. Yep. Right. So it's very similar. Yeah. Different right. Language. Love that. So good. All right. Number 10. 10th house, highest potential. Right. So this is really your highest expression in this lifetime. This is the archetype that you're utilizing to experience your highest potential. Now we're using all of them, but this is really one that we're being called to really master. Right. So I have the victim in my highest potential, which means my highest potential is overcoming any aspect of feeling victimized, Mm. you know, giving my power away, you know, outsourcing power to something outside of me. Mm. You know, so for me, my highest potential is working with the victim inside of me. Yeah. 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 I I have the athlete here, um, which, you know, my NBA potential is is uh uh-huh. off the table at this point but but i do love um everything about athletics there's something so unique about the arena and uh the pressure and performing under the lights and and there's something so unique about just the human experience at large when all of those circumstances are perfectly set in place uh what is required of the human being and and, and kind of the the potential of performance when the, that pressure and the lights and the arena are all there in the perfect moment. And, um, I, I thoroughly enjoy that. I miss that from my athletic career, uh, but am also seeking it in different adult lanes of life as well. And mm-hmm. so I find some of the greatest nectar of life and, and buzz of life are in those moments in the figurative arena. Mm-hmm. And I would say too, for you, like, um, think about how much potential, spiritual, mental, emotional, uh, potential you've tapped into through the lane of your physical body and how hard and how smart and how, um, how you push yourself, mm-hmm. like even just, uh, you know, taking on a a mobility practice. It's like a spiritual practice for you. Mm -hmm. And it's all within that, like learning through your body and using your body as a vehicle for growth in other aspects, like spiritual, emotional, mental. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I love it. So uh, my archetype in this highest potential house is the guide. Which when I pulled it, it was one of those like, oh, fucking course, of course, like it was it was in the best way. Like, yeah, of course, it's like that's where I um, connect with the most meaning. That's where I feel most filled is when I can have that balance of um, 
giving just enough energy and letting things be alchemizing things in a certain way and sharing my experience with people I care about, or even just strangers on social media to know that people are um, benefiting from the transformation and the process that I've gone through and just sharing of my experience. That's all I want to do. Like That's what I want my work in the world to be. And it makes sense that it's there in my highest potential. So being a guide for others and also working with inner guidance more than constantly seeking outer guidance. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's awesome. Having the guide next to your saboteur and spirituality, mm-hmm. which means staying committed to your inner guidance. Yeah. Right? Even if it's inconvenient sometimes and just being in relationship with someone who has a strong guide archetype, making sure that we're guiding, not controlling. Mm-hmm. You know, they say like, you tell someone once you're guiding, tell someone twice you're controlling. Yeah. So kind of working with that dynamic a little bit. And then, you know, the athlete in the highest potential, what comes to mind for me is to compete, but not compare. Yeah. And to show up rather than perform. Um, You're so good with the one liners. (laughs) and then obviously the athlete and the hermit across from each other you have the yin and the yang right hermit being yin athlete being yang and balancing the two yep oh Mm -hmm. i love that i'm gonna remember that compete don't compare show up don't show up don't perform oh that's great so good um 11th house 11th soul companions good community global community oh global community that's my own handwriting (laughs) <laughs> so 11th house is group relationships, right? So you know how like Paul talks about I, we all. Yep. So the first part of the wheel is I, then we get into relationships one-on-one, it's we. And then as we get into house 9, 10, 11, 12, we go into the all, right? So um, like for me, for example, I have the mentor, which means a lot of my contract with groups is actually you know whether it's teaching workshops webinars like um even podcasting is like being the the mentor to the community Mm. um you know leading by example things like that so the the 11th house is kind of like it's remember it's across from the fifth house the fifth house represents your inner gift the 11th house is how you bring that gift to the world Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm i've got the saboteur here and, um, of course, going back to the fifth house, which is the addict, mm-hmm. uh, and correct me if, if my correlation is, is off here, but I think I will in my compulsions and addictions will sabotage the opportunity for connection, um, or community. Um, and so I see those playing together, uh, for sure. Uh, but, but even in some of my other more introverted qualities or archetypes have, have found myself, you know, self-sabotaging opportunity for companionship or community, um, or even in maybe the dynamic of our, our, you know, marriage at times. Um, but that's kind of what comes up for me as I, as I reflect back on having the saboteur in this house. Yeah. It's not, it's not uncommon for someone to have an orphan child and have the saboteur in groups. Yeah. Right. Especially if you're like, I need to do it all myself. I can't rely mm-hmm. on other people 
I couldn't rely on my family, which was the first group I was exposed to, the first tribe I was a member of. So, you know, it's not surprising to have the saboteur in that house with yeah. that kind of like dynamic. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Dang. Wow. <laughs> so good. Um, I have the networker here, um, which makes sense for what we do and being a guide for my highest potential that obviously includes um, connections and networking and making connections. Um, but yeah, curious to hear your thoughts here. Well, the companions across from your networker. So those are both about connection, mm -hmm. right? So obviously when you're in group dynamics, there's a part of you that is engaged in kind of like making connections, sharing. So the networker kind of, you know, could be social media, you know, mm -hmm. so sharing on social media, um, but making connections. And what I had written down for some reason, this came to mind was to connect rather than correct. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause it's next to the guide. Yeah. So the guide is giving guidance. The networker is sharing, but the guide and the networker, you want to make sure that you're connecting first before correcting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I was just kind of what intuitively kind of dropped in as I kind of just connected with the networker. Yeah. 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 No, right. that makes sense. Yeah. It totally resonates. Um, and in our work with, you know, podcast is a, is a form of networking. We're connecting our audience with people like you mm -hmm. and, um, you know, continuing like it, this is an this is a, an active and ongoing uh, point of um, evolution for me is giving the invitation, making the invitation and letting people choose for themselves that I don't need to control or correct. I can simply make the offering, make the um, introduction, you know, network that way and yeah. let people be okay with um, where they want to go and what they want to do. Yeah. And Something else that just kind of like dropped in is if you feel the energy of the companion in the fifth house, that's the two of you, right? The fifth house is the gift, right? You guys have a gift that's created with the marriage of the two of you. And then across from the 11th house is community, tribe, or the collective, how the gift is then shared with the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the networker now takes the gift of your companionship and moves it out into the collective. Yeah. Right. Through sharing and connecting. Mm -hmm. Right. So you see how the companionship of the two then move out into the many. And that's the energy of the companion in the fifth house working with the networker in the 11th house. That's cool. Yeah. Right? Oh, this is so cool. I love it. I know we've already done this before and I'm just loving it all yeah, over no, again. <laughs> revisiting these, I'm reminded how important this is. And this, like, I hope you guys are picking up how, like, this is the third time we've gone through the process, Chase and I, you know, choosing our stuff, resonating with the archetypes. And Greg is here and he's, he's making new insights. He's, he's making new totally. connections for us. And we've done this multiple times for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, I hope you see what incredible value this is to have a th unbiased third party, like being able to connect the dots and just offer it uh, in the way that you do is so great. Thank you. 
All right, let's wrap this thing up. 12th house. 12th house, unconscious. So this is our unconscious, which is also our relationship to the collective conscience, Mm. right? To the collective consciousness. So whatever archetype we have in the 12th house is our connection to the greater whole. But a lot of it is unconscious. So it's, it's kind of like the... Remember, the first house leads from the front. The 12th house leads from behind, right? Mm-hmm. Which means the 12th house is kind of like the backseat driver that's informing where you're going, but you're not consciously aware that it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. You know, Caroline Miss also says that the 12th house is either the source of your greatest gifts and miracles or your greatest suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. So like for me, I have the shapeshifter. So for me, the shapeshifter is my greatest gift is adaptability, navigating different levels of consciousness, right? Shapeshifting into whatever is needed in that situation, not being attached to one version of myself. Mm. But the shadow side is losing myself, losing my authenticity, losing my connection to home base. Yeah. You know, greatest gift, greatest suffering. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah, it's so good. I, I have the detective as the archetype in this house. And I think greatest gift could be um, curious, problem solving, um, able to pick up on clues and hints. And, and where and things are breaking down. Where there's break breaking or puzzling things together to find meaning. And then, uh, you know, potentially uh, greatest weakness would be hyper skeptical um lack of trust uh potentially even um lack of uh belief in in what should be believed in or have faith in um yeah yeah and mine is the same like i'm i'm i can see how the the greatest gift plays into um you know it's a fine line between the greatest suffering mine is the student And I feel this deeply because obviously I have a passion for learning and acquiring knowledge that I can then gift to other people, share with other people, Mm -hmm. help guide. So it's like, it it is connected to my, my um, highest potential and greatest gift, but also my greatest suffering because I constantly have to be an inner world coach on myself of not feeling like I'm constantly behind that there's mm. more that I should be doing. There's more that I should be learning. There's more, always more that I should be mastering. And why haven't I learned this yet? Why haven't I become a marketing expert yet? Why haven't I fill in the blank? And it's Chase knows this very well that I, I, I have this, it's very easy for me to get there. And to the point where it's like, I'm suffering because of what I'm not learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I experience that all the time, whether it's listening to a podcast, coming across a new book or a new course or a new certification. And there's a part of me that's just like, oh my gosh, I have to, you know, like, it's like that fear of missing out. Yeah. Yeah. Fear of being left behind. Um, It could also be learning, but not applying. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the student is about learning, but it's also about unlearning. Yeah. You know, a lot of our learning is unlearning. So yeah, true. You know? sure. um, but then just lastly, something that just kind of popped in for you, Chase, with the detective is 
um, remember the detective leads into the storyteller. So one of your greatest gifts is questioning your stories mm. or questioning your narratives. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. So yeah. Greatest suffering would be not trusting or not questioning your narratives. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, That's really good. It's, it reminds me of the image of the snake that's eating its tail, you know, yeah. that old the Ouroboros. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, this is that where it's like the the twelfth house is pushing from behind into the our ego personality and like we it just starts all over again. Yeah, the wheel keeps turning. Yeah. Well, that is it. That is the wheel. That is the archetype wheel in the twelve houses. Um, what a what a really really cool and fun and insightful process. Yeah. Um, I encourage everybody. Uh, if you're interested, and even if you're not, you should be, <laughs> uh, to look into this work and you can, you can do it by, by of course, checking out Caroline miss, um, but looking, looking into Greg and his work as well, Greg, where would be a good place for people to start? Um, obviously I'm hoping we get some people who are, who are going to book sessions and up level their life through this process. How can they find out more? So the best way to find out more is to go to my website which is healing4d.com. And they can actually purchase time with me directly to cast their wheel, which is usually about a three hour process. And we can do that all in one shot or we can break it up like we did with, with you guys. Um, and that would be healing4d.com forward slash programs. Cool. And that's where they can book time with me directly to cast the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, definitely check the show notes. We'll have a link down there for you guys. Um, I would say also, um, in the meantime of scheduling, um, as sort of like a prerequisite to listen to the book, sacred contracts and, and familiarize yourself even more so with this language and Caroline Mace is so wonderful. And it's a, it's a really quick audiobook. We just talked about it on our last episode. It's like a four hour audiobook. You could listen to it in a day. But you're, it, it, it would be a really great prerequisite to Absolutely. working with, with you, Greg, it, for sure. It is a, this process and working with Greg is, is talk therapy mixed with like an art project. Yeah. And uh, if you're doing it with another, you know, individual like your, your significant other or friend, um, it's just connecting and, and uh, really powerful for just strengthening the, the bond of a relationship. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't say enough. We've done a lot of cool shit through the podcast over the last two and a half years. This is like some of some of the coolest work we've done. And so, so much appreciation to you, Greg, because this has been just a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. You are so gifted. Like I know I keep saying it and <laughs> it sounds like I'm blowing smoke up your ass at this point, but like truly you have a gift and the visionary is front and center. Just, yeah. I, I appreciate so much. Also your unbiased and non-judgmental attitude towards it all it's it really makes it inviting as someone who's working through you know these these different archetypes um and just having someone who is so knowledgeable and in equal parts no judgment just like here it is neutral is is so valuable well i, I appreciate that and i appreciate you guys having me on again um one thing i'll share is the reason that I might come across that way doing your wheels is the way I look at a wheel is 
I bring that wheel into me and say, okay, if that was my wheel, Mm. what do I see in myself? Mm. So with that, everything that you're seeing in yourself, I can find that in me somewhere, Mm. you know? So that's why the archetypes are so helpful. And for me, it's actually not a hard process to work with someone because if you're honest with yourself, you can find these patterns in yourself somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's, that's why I can't hold judgment because I'm like, well, I probably do that too on some level. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, once you do the archetypes, you see yourself in everything Yeah. Yeah. and you stop judging and you also stop taking things personally. which is an added bonus. There's so many lessons. It's not just like a fun, like personality test. There's so many deep, rich lessons waiting for us in this work. Um, And uh, yeah, we're going to keep digging into it. Um, Great. Is there anything else that you want to share before we say goodbye? Um, No, I think that's, here's a, here's a question for you guys. Okay. Where does your soul exist on the wheel? At the center point. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. Is <laughs> the center point of a circle or a wheel is not moving. Yeah. Right? Ooh. Yeah. So yeah. God or soul, which is pure potential, is not moving. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then it's the archetypes that turn the wheel and create movements. Yeah. But yeah. remember, an archetypal possession is if you get too far out of the center where yeah. you forget your connection to the center and you get overly identified with an archetype. Yeah, that I actually thought that when we were going through this, I was looking at my wheel that I drew out and I was, you know, looking at um, like the nature child and the athlete across from each other. And I was like, okay, I need to be in the center. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, that makes sense because the center is perfect balance. It's pure, pure mm-hmm. potential. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a, a cool way to end. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you for hanging with us today. Go check out Greg and uh, his work. Book a session with him. This is not being exaggerative. This is life changing, life transformative work. And we all deserve to have this understanding of our self and our nature and then um, you know, use that information to create a more beautiful life and a more beautiful world. That's what we're all here for. Definitely. All right, we'll talk to you guys next time. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Hey friend, thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.